I met Michael in the fall of 2012 at the University of California in Santa Barbara, where he was working on his PhD in comparative literature. Besides the obvious shared interest in literature, I bonded with Michael over our love of cinema and music, two spheres in which I was always surprised by his extensive knowledge across genres. Then there was literary theory. It wasn't taught in our seminars, I wanted to learn it, and Michael couldn't get enough of it. At the beginning of spring quarter, Michael invited me and two other grad students for some beers in Derrida. He would assign a text and we'd meet next to campus at Woodstock's Pizza. The first hour would be spent attempting to disentangle these impossible balls of yarn, working together to make sense of them. Sometimes during these discussions, for an instant, I felt as if I had caught a glimpse of absolute truth just a fraction of a second in which understanding seemed to exist beyond language, and then it would just vanish, leaving the faintest trail, a smile. The second hour was usually spent obsessing about movies over pizza and beer. This was the pure pursuit of knowledge I had expected grad school to be. There were never any feelings of jealousy or competition with Michael, because he was simply in another league. I was always thrilled whenever I found out I would be sharing a seminar with him, because he would always raise the bar and bring out the best in all of us. The other students and I spoke of it openly. In a couple of years, a bunch of lucky kids are going to get to have him as a teacher. One of the sweetest memories I have of those years is walking home in the rain after one of our Thursday theory nights, three of us laughing and squeezing together, trying to fit under one umbrella. I remember feeling that everything in life was going to be okay, that this was exactly what I had hoped life would be. California, literature, beer, laughter, Derrida, pizza. This is Rich Chocolatey Goodness. Hello. Hey. What's up? How's it going? Oh my god. <laughs> it's been How are you, man? It's good to hear your voice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Wow. How's uh man, you're Parisian now. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. Dude. Yeah, how's uh how's the married life? Oh, oh, we're starting off with the tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we gotta get get through the the chatter before uh, <laughs> the truth, you know. Um, it's great, man. It's going great. Um, it's you know, it's married life. But somebody else told me before that, like, I always avoid that question. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just because it's way too much information, you know. Yeah. But uh, but in a nutshell, it's great. It's a lot better than I expected. Yeah, it's, it is a weird question though, because like, uh, yeah, I was a. Uh, I went to see his talk by this um, professor in uh, Marilyn Johnson. She talks about uh, relevance in speech, right? So it's like, um, if I ask you a question, how much relevant information should you give me, right? Should you go really into detail or should you just like uh, 
Anyways, lost your digression there. <laughs> it's interesting. I don't know. Uh, wait, all right. Well, we uh, you started it off. All right, let's just go ahead and do the countdown and get it started. Yeah. All right. So just to make sure we're in sync. Yeah. Uh, rich chocolatey goodness. 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 All right. What is up? Yeah. Professor Mike, Dr. Mike. <laughs> I really want to hear about the, you know, your inclusion of pension, right? Like why that, why that passage specifically? Because I was, I was reading it yesterday, right? And uh, it's like, I think it's at a, a diner or something, right? Or at a mass from Crying of Lot 49 is talking to uh, her husband, right? Yeah, mucho mas. <laughs> <laughs> mucho mas. <laughs> Mucho mas. And um, basically, he's kind of talking about like the kind of stuff that was going on with the Beach Boys, right? The like pet sounds, like these kind of new innovations of pop music where uh, people started to record in studios of these big bands. And like, yeah. Was this before? Same year. 65. 66, I think. I think same year. So that's weird, though. I don't know. So I don't know what came first. It'd be funny if, uh, if Pynchon came first. And then pet sounds. Well, you're right. putting a lot of pressure on this man. I, <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad because you're the only person that's gotten excited about like that recognizes the 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 reference. And uh, yeah. I'm afraid I'm afraid I'm gonna let you down. <laughs> but then you can you can save it. Yeah, I mean that's a great novel. I, I taught it when I first came to FIU. It was like the first novel I taught. Did you choose it or was it in the in the syllabus? Why? Yeah, I chose it. It was a uh, I didn't choose a class though. I came in and they said, you're teaching the postmodern novel. I'm like, shit, what the fuck is a postmodern novel, right? <laughs> so I had to like figure that out, right? And um, really, it became like, a, I'm really in love with postmodern literature. Uh, but in that class, right, we, did, we started with Pynchon's Crime of Law 49. And then we did um, Paul Auster's City of Glass. Uh, we did Patrick Modiano's Door Bruder. Yeah, it was interesting class. We did uh, People of Paper, right, by Salvador Placencia. You know, you, know, you know that book? Nope. Uh, City of Glass, I read the comic book. <laughs> Not the... Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, I, I really, this that Pomo stuff is really cool. Wait, well, so what, what would make something a postmodern novel? Like just the fact that it's filled with references uh, in order to create meaning? Or... That's a good question. I think there are a couple of criteria, right? Uh, for instance, it has to have elements of metafiction. That is to say, uh, the fiction should reflect on itself. Like, it has to be like speculative, right? It has to be concerned about itself. It's not just like a realist depiction of something. Rather, it's like questioning its own construction. The second aspect is intertextuality, right? So this, the text is not a center. As a text, it connects other texts, which connects other texts. And so it creates a kind of network instead of a enclosed book. Uh, and I think the, the third thing is that it's like really into um, issues of commodification. Like reality has been commodified and objectified by mass media. So uh, I think a lot of postmodern texts are trying to uh, disentangle themselves from uh, you know, this pervasive influence of you know mass media 
So if it has those three things, <laughs> it's Pomo as fuck, you know. <laughs> Shit, so you could, you could call me a postmodern novelist then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like a, it's part of like the the tradition of like the metaphysical novel, right? Because these are novels that are talking about metaphysics. They're talking about time and the relation to space and um, trying to create unities of time and space that are not really unities, but only exist in the form of narrative. Do you know Simone de Beauvoir? I've heard of her. Yeah, she's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I've never read, at least not that I remember. Oh, yeah. I'm obsessed with her stuff. Yeah. I really, I think she was... Uh, she was much better than Sot. Like they were like partners, but she has this essay called the the. I have these, you know, I have these series of quotes. So basically, I'm gonna. <laughs> you got it ready. In our conversation, I'm gonna say these random quotes because I've just been thinking about them, right? And I think, you know, I know that you're, you know, you're like a poet philosopher, right? Oh, I would. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you know, there's always a nice spark that happens when people like us come together, right? So, um, yeah, anyways, I just want to share a couple quotes in the middle of our conversations, uh, see what we make of them. Sprinkle them in, yeah. Yeah, so this is from uh, an essay by Simone de Beauvoir. It's called uh, Metaphysics and Literature. <laughs> All right, here it goes. It goes, quote, uh, a metaphysical novel that is honestly read and honestly written provides a disclosure of existence in a way unequaled by any other mode of expression. Far from being, as has sometimes been claimed, a dangerous deviation from the novelistic genre. The metaphysical novel seems to me, on the contrary, to be an accomplishment of the highest level, since insofar as it is successful, it strives to grasp man and human events in relation to the totality of the world. And since it alone can succeed where pure literature and pure philosophy fail, that is, in evoking in its living unity and its fundamental living ambiguity, this destiny of ours is inscribed both in time and in eternity. Oh, damn, right? That's hot <laughs> shit. All right. Now, now here's the problem. Usually, uh, if I was reading this, I would go back and look at it a couple of times. Yeah, I know. It's true. You know, this is recorded, right? So it's like, you know, it's interesting because it makes you think about this is like archive somewhere, right? It's like, it's going to be part of an archive, you know, and we're not going to be involved in the archive. Like maybe some random person somewhere is going to be discovering this podcast and listening to that shit and be like, damn. That came out of nowhere. <laughs> So just to give listeners some, because uh, I need an explanation. I don't have the text in front of me. And oh, uh, yeah. I got a couple of stuff in there, but, uh, you know, whew, over my head. <laughs> Would you be kind enough to elaborate? And then if you, and then people can go back and listen to it again, and then it will make sense, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. It's like, well, one of the big words here is like a totality, right? The metaphysical novel puts a human in relation to a totality of the world, right? But the thing is that I don't think this is like a, a fixed wholeness or anything. It's like um, it's an ambiguous unity, right? Actually, a good way to explain this would be your own stuff you're working on. I heard that you wrote a, a short story about Cortázar, right? Yeah, Cortázar and uh, Isidore Ducas, uh, uh, Oh, wow. That's interesting. So I don't know. Maybe you could explain to the listeners. Uh, I guess my context 
when I was looking at this quote last night was um, thinking about what you said about the story you're working on. Can you tell us uh, what that's about? That, that, what that story is about? Yeah. Um, well, it's just, I'm just going to spoil it, but just to make it simple, I'm going to tell it from the end. Uh, I ate some very strange food, three brains, in a restaurant. And then later I found out that that was the house of this writer who was known for being kind of macabre and uh, he was like a big influence in the surrealist. Yeah. And uh, that writer was a Latin American from the late 1800s where he lived in Paris. And uh, so Cortázar is a writer that I'm studying and like I'm obsessed, like I'm, I'm doing my PhD on him. I'm reading all of his correspondence. So while I was reading his correspondence, I found that he was also searching for this other person, uh, Lautremont. You know, in the past, walking around, he didn't have the internet, so it took a bit more research to find these places. And then he says, did you know that uh, this place where he lived, like I found it, it's a restaurant now. And I found out that the place where I ate those three brains was his house. Wow. So then that initial strange experience completely changed and it made perfect sense that I would eat three brains with a knife and fork in his house. Yeah. And it's all because of that time, you know, but I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what I'm talking about, right? So um, what I mean to say is that experience of the eating the three brains became a kind of unity of experience, mm-hmm. right? That put three times together into one space. Because like time is like not, um, like you can't really see time, right? You can't really f- feel time. But you had like a moment where like time sort of did a kind of compression and kind of image, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, that's legit, right? Because it puts you into a kind of tradition, right? Something that was passed down, right? Yeah, I kind of put myself in there a little <laughs> a little magnanimous. but I know it's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It has to be kind of subjective, right? I mean, if it's objective, that's like, that's weird. <laughs> I think it's, it makes it's more honest if it's subjective and not really factual you know i would like the the writer part is the least of those attributes it's more like latin americans in paris who are chasing somebody else you know who who uh who think more about the greatness of, of those people they're studying you know that's that's what i was thinking about not like look at us three writers yeah <laughs> oh yeah yeah that, yeah well it's interesting it's like uh you like chasing out chasing around this character uh, you know, that reminds me of a text I taught by Patrick Modiano. He won the Nobel Prize a couple years back. Ever heard of him? Nope. I'm very bad with current stuff. Very oh, bad. yeah. He's, he's, uh, he wrote this book called Door Bruder. It's about, um, it's, it takes place in Paris. Um, well, Patrick Modiano is Jewish, and he becomes obsessed with this kind of random Jewish girl, like someone who actually lived during the World War II, right? And she got sent to the gas chamber. But he he's like obsessed with like all these coincidences between him and her, like they lived in, near each other at one point, kind of in time, and so he's like trying to like find the traces of her, but he never wants to like tell her story because that's like disrespectful. He doesn't want to be like factually accurate about her life, but the sense of connection I guess he wants to keep, even though it's based on loss. It's really cool. You should take a look at it. Yeah, it sounds like the relationship I have with Cortez. <laughs> yeah, check out Door Bruder. It's really short, and I, I, I'm sure the French is not that hard. But yeah, just check it out. Cool. I think, uh, yeah, Project Modiano is really cool. What's it called? Uh, Dora Bruder. 
it's really sad, you know? I mean, it's not weepy or anything. It doesn't try to tear jerk you, right? But it's like, you're reading it and then all of a sudden like, wow. It's like trying to chase after this ghost, right? The specter. And the specter means so much. But anyways, yeah, it's it's cool. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely relate to that. I mean, to the way you're explaining it. Yeah, because that's, that's what I've been doing, just chasing it. I think um, postmodern literature gets like a bad rap. They think it's like all parodic, all fun and games. But I think there's some writers that incorporate post-structural theory, you know, because that was like Paris in the 60s, right? It's like everyone was like writing about that, you know, like uh, Philip Solaire's and, you know, the 60s, like, right? Uh, Bart. You're opening up a lot of doors, man. <laughs> uh. Yeah, but it, like Bart, like all Telkel, you know, that whole, that whole, uh, that was a scene, right? And it was like the scene influenced so much writers in the 60s. Um, hold on. I, we have to come back to that because now, now you're opening different doors. Let's close the first one uh, and it'll keep that thing about 60s French uh, writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good to close doors, actually. You're right. I think uh, that's a good metaphor. So the, the first thing is that this whole thing that you mentioned about time, that's a perfect way to answer your first question about the why the, the crying of Lot 49. I said I was going to let you down with my answer. Yeah. Uh, it's It's really just, I like the sound of the phrase rich chocolatey goodness <laughs> yeah i don't know but he read the novel though right yeah yeah and uh out of the novel that's the thing that stuck with me i mean i read it it was fun but that one part so what happens is that he is a uh, like he's taking too much acid yeah he's a secondary character he's not even important this conversation really doesn't have much of a influence on the, the storyline but like he stops her while they're talking and like because he's paying attention to the music he's like you hear that <laughs> yeah, yeah. one of the one of the one of the violins is like slightly flat and then he says like this thing that like it was it's almost like a borges thing where they just throw one little thing at you and that thing could be a giant story but they just throw it at you and they let you imagine it yeah and he says do you think they'll ever be able to do that dinosaur bone bit uh, with that. Like just from hearing the way that this note is played, yeah. they could recreate the inside of his ear and from there the musculature <laughs> of his arm to understand how he grabbed. Like, and I love that idea. It's such a massive idea, you know, yeah. to think that you could recreate a human being based on the way that he played a note slightly flat. Yeah. And then he goes into this whole thing about... Uh, but he asks her to say, say rich chocolatey goodness. And then because he, he says that he has the ability now to separate all the tracks and all the frequencies. And he has this idea where if he could slide everybody's timeline back and forth because time is arbitrary, then everybody who has ever said rich chocolatey goodness, you know, you move some a uh, couple hundred years, you move some a couple seconds and you line them all up and you have this giant chorus of like a million people saying, rich chocolatey goodness <laughs> and like that thing is just such a great idea yeah because I, I had this idea like i want to talk to all my friends and i thought that it'd be cool to ask everybody to say it yeah it's amazing and each episode will have the everybody saying it and also then it would kind of reflect on my personality being like well look here's some like literary reference and i'm using it just to make a fucking joke you know like there's not that much depth in it yeah. i just happen to have read the book and it's i like the way rich chocolatey goodness sounds <laughs> yeah yeah but i don't know i think there's something profound there you know that scene right is supposed to be like emblematic of like the book as a whole right uh no i knew nothing about this book i found it in a boat in london oh shit i love these coincidences there's a, like Baudelaire calls it like correspondences, right? In reality. 
but I guess uh, in case listeners haven't heard of uh, the book, right? So the book's about uh, Oedipa Mass. Moss, <laughs> like you know, Oedipa, right? It sounds like Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Anyways, her boyfriend died. His name's uh, Pierce, and Pierce wanted her to arrange his will, like all his possessions. And so it's sort of this like metaphorical plot where she's trying to organize his will after his death to find a truth or a presence within the will, right? What he's left behind. So it becomes like a the same thing you're talking about, Kutasar or Dora Bruder, where it's like someone is trying to like piece together another life, but through piecing together another life, you know, your your own life starts to gain or lose meaning too. Mm-hmm. So it becomes this kind of weird symbiotic relationship. Yeah, but this is a really cool passage, though. I pulled up uh, from my notes. Uh, quote number two. Quote number two. You ready? <laughs> All right. It says. Uh, for one thing, she read over the will more closely. If it was really Pierce's attempt to leave an organized something behind after his own annihilation, then it was part of her duty, wasn't it, to bestow life on what had persisted, to try to be what Driblet was, the dark machine in the center of the planetarium, to bring the estate into pulsing, stelliferous meaning. But Oedipa wondered whether... At the end of this, if we're supposed to end, she too might not be left with only compiled memories of clues, announcements, intimations, but never the central truth itself, which must somehow each time be too bright for her memory to hold, which must always blaze out, destroying its own message irreversibly, leaving an overexposed blank when the ordinary world came back. Oh man, that's cool. Like uh, she's trying to like, she feels like it's her duty to bestow life on his death, right? But she's worried that she will never find essential truth. That all there's going to be is like little clues here and there, little traces. Sounds like a PhD student. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I was actually like, I'm doing like a manuscript now. And that's like, kind of like what research is like, I think. Especially like human, the human sciences, right? We're like you know, spinning around in the void. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, the 60s, French 60s, so this is related to that, to your research and all that, because you're very much into all the French writers of the 60s. Yeah. But I was surprised when I came here that, uh, like, that stuff came and went. I mean, it's, it's still obviously a part of the school, but it's not as big as it is in the U.S. It's really weird how this little... Mm. Like it just opened up a new genealogy of of schools uh, of thought in the U.S. Yeah, that makes sense. I think well, they've incorporated them, right? I mean, that was a big time. That was a big deal. Like, and there was no other period like that in the '60s. But I think you know, people move on. Like, it gets incorporated, so it's like everyone knows that happened. But like, the United States books have, need to be translated and then have to be taught, right? So it's like. I think only like in the 80s or 90s where people like knew about deconstruction and stuff and post-structuralism and, you know, Lacanian psychoanalysis. Yeah, whereas over here, kind of history just went on. Yeah. And it evolved at a natural pace. And over there, it was like placed outside of its environment, like, bam! Yeah. uh... (laughs) (laughs) I think um, not everyone does this, but I really think that if I'm going to study literature, it has to be relevant to philosophy. You know, especially like continental philosophy. Like, I mean, what takes up a lot of my time, right? Is like to read a lot of uh, philosophy. 
like uh but stuff like you know like phenomenology and hermeneutics and psychoanalysis these kind of disciplines are like why i try to how i read culture right and how i read literature uh can you elaborate on that because that's going uh that's going like over my head oh yeah yeah well you know it's it's you know uh phenomenology is really interesting because that that happened like in the 1900s right with Husserl you know um so the whole idea of you remember you, you talked about um a rich chocolate goodness and how almost as if you're like a uh like a dj where you're like changing the channels and mixing things right mm-hmm. you know in phenomenology the big idea is called a uh, a reduction so our natural attitude towards the world it's called a natural attitude and they want to avoid that right your everyday interaction in the world is not very philosophical so like what phenomenology try to do is like well you got to you know really pay attention you have to reduce what you see in the world and kind of like focus on things to try to find the essence of things right and you know that idea blew people's minds So after that, you have people like Heidegger, who is talking about, you know, the nature of being, like, what is being, you know? <laughs> like, he basically says, like, everyone forgot what being is. Like, no one knows what to live anymore is. They don't, they're not in touch with being. So it's like, you need to really dig deep into the language you use in order to kind of stir up your being again, your sense of your relation to time and stuff. And so these ideas... Uh, and not, not a lot of people know this, and these are German ideas, right? These German ideas really come into play with what's going to become post-structuralism uh, and like the idea of language and how language structures everything. But it's all based on this idea of like, you want to get in touch with being. But, you know, uh, anyways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. It's just like, you know, like, it's good. I think everybody appreciated the explanation. Thank you. So like traditional, like analytical philosophy, uh, you know, they want to say things clearly, right? They want like a clear correspondent truth. But a lot of the folks in the, the phenomenology, they're, they're more into literature, right? It's like, they're more into like these moments where like life means something. And it's like that whole thing, right? Uh, the existentialists are a good, good example of people who took ideas from phenomenology and just ran with them, right? These people are really interested in ideas like freedom and meaning, what's the meaning of life and how do we construct meaning? Uh, I guess I'm part of that. That's what you think about every day. And that's why you're reading. That's what I think about every day. Yeah. It's really like, I mean, I, um, it's kind of like a, it's kind of disturbing. <laughs> well, I mean, I that's about cool, it. <laughs> because like, you know, like I wake up in the morning and like, you could tell like, that's what I was dreaming about. Because like, I'm trying to like, get ready for school. And like, all I'm thinking about is like, uh something why do i even bother yeah something no, no no like it's not that though i think there's a it's not why even bother like i think there's like a it provokes a real search for truth you know and but truth in a way that's like truth is not like something that everyone would know it's like more like a hole that's in reality right like a, a lacan calls it a hole in knowledge and you if you go through that hole you know your whole experience of reality change you know? And you think that this can be found 
through language, like looking at how we use language, yeah. or you think the answer is like finding like, oh, it's like uh, kissing your daughter in the morning on her first birthday, or like, <laughs> um, yeah, both, I guess. Uh, how it, well, both of those interact with language, right? Because you're not just kissing your daughter. I mean, like, it's like, well, you're, you're kissing your daughter. Like, those are word, two words, right? Kissing and daughter. Canadian and Freudian, but uh, <laughs> that's really disturbing. Kissing your sweaty daughter in the morning. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. Yeah, you picked a dangerous example there. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. See, I was I was actually thinking of something sweet, like you know, I imagine like oh, if I have it, and uh, but yeah, you're right. It's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh shit but let's run with it so yeah 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 but um yeah but you know the thing is that i guess you interpret your life by um the words you use right like the the value you, you apply to words and so yeah it's just a constant interrogation of language and how you inhabit it how you might go beyond it uh yeah <laughs> that's what i think about <laughs> yeah no no it, it's oh man this is good oh man i missed uh talking to you it's fun uh i don't usually get a chance to it's been a while since i've taken these mental gymnastics <laughs> yeah i think uh like these two disembodied voices whatever um there's something very like well lacan talked about this idea where like you find how you're put into language by by talking to people, like a conversation you have with someone else. And that's like the only time truth is really revealed. It's not like when you're talking to yourself, it's like when you're, you have to address someone else, you know? So I think, you know, it's like moments like these are really important. Uh, yeah, so thanks for this. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes like when you hang out with a friend, you don't want to talk about uh, philosophy, right? You you want to just like hang out, you know, which which I'm doing here too, you know. Not to say that this is kind of like hanging out a bit, but you know, um, yeah. But then sometimes you haven't seen someone for so long, and you want to talk about what you're interested in, and and shit gets interesting, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the last time I I tried to grasp this, like this idea that. Because I understand, like kissing your daughter, like okay, the, oh yeah, a kiss, like a kiss doesn't exist until you create the category of kiss. Otherwise, it's just like in the random category of touching, yeah, touching with the mouth. So a daughter, you know, that exists because we decide that we take care of our own, as opposed to that if we lived in a community where all the children belong to all the, you know, like those are two big categories. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I think I think that's exactly right. And you use a really cool word, like they're like categories. They're like these concepts and every concept is related to other concepts. Yeah. And they validate each other. Like that's a dog because it's chasing that cat and that's a cat because it's running away yeah. from the dog. Also, uh, like if it's a daughter, there's a lot of um, that goes with that, right? She's part of a symbolic network because you have your, your own parents or your own people you're close to and you have a daughter. Obviously, you have to like protect your daughter and you have to like, you know, it's like you have to give your life to your children, right? Uh, so all these ideas that, like, when you say the word daughter, there's like all these associations that we have them. Yeah. Are you uh, are you thinking of? Uh, I'm not trying to be your uh, your therapist or anything. <laughs> Was I thinking about what? How my I mean, daughter? Uh, have you thought of children? 
Well, yeah, and I really like. I would like to have uh, daughters, uh, so just fucking afraid, you know. Except for that fantasy of having your kid play in the World Cup. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and then some people will say, "Well, why not the females, the soccer team?" It's, it's a fantasy, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I like it. when I think about having children. I think it'd be nice to have uh, daughters because fucking boys are fucking insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's why I came up with that with that example, like just something sweet in the future that I want. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So go, going back to that thing, like now you've opened yeah, this. Yeah. Man. I, I, yeah. Uh, so you have this this giant thing where everything is there, and we start like enclosing it with words in order to describe it. But it's the same as as if looking at a at, at the globe, you know. Mm. And we decided that this is France, and that's Italy, and that's Germany, and those three are there. But it's completely random, or not random, but it could be many other ways. You could create different borders by different criteria. Mm. Right? Is that? Am I going in the right uh, direction? Or no? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And then there's just this void in there. And then the last time that I had dared to try and understand this was back when I was studying in Santa Barbara. And I got as far as thinking, like, all right, well, this is like physicists will probably hate me for doing a disservice, but mm. how everything is supposed to just be vibrating oh, yeah. and everything's unified. And then we decide to separate it into like, well, this thing right here, that's a chair. Yeah. But if you look enough, there's really no separation between one thing and the other. It's all just the same shit. Yeah everywhere yeah so i mean isn't like the way we separate from objects becomes uh really important because that's what language does right it separates you from things that are close to you because if you get if you get too close to how what reality really is that's really terrifying you know it's like what lacan calls the real right so we had to, you know we did live with you know we had to live with um how we're separated from language and that's that's a cool thing yeah you know uh there's a quote from lacan that, Want me to read it? Quote number three. Yeah, yeah. Are you ready for this? Yeah. So this is from uh, seminar two. It's a seminar on the, he's like critiquing the ego. So one of the big ideas in Lacan is that people often get confused. I wonder if, I wonder what you think. But uh, so you said that people are really confused in terms of um, the ego and the subject. Uh, people sometimes confuse them and think they're the same thing. Right, like the ego as I and like a subject, but Lacan's like, no, no, no. Those are those are two different things. If you want to really discover who you are, you have to like go beyond your ego, right? You need to like become in contact with something else, and that that movement that's like the subject. The subject is kind of like what moves through language and understands itself as divided. That's that's a profound idea in Lacan, right? Doof, that's a. Uh... That's a heavy one. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool sure. idea. Hold on, I need you to uh, repeat it. I'll put it another way. We, we tend to conflate identity and subjectivity. We think they're like the same thing, but we don't want to think about how they're different. They're fundamentally different. Like your, your subjectivity is different than your identity. Like I'm like, your identity, what? I don't know. I'm from, um, I grew up in Puerto Rico and, uh, or uh, I like listening to boleros or something like that. Uh, those are like my identity, right? Uh, the subjectivity is something more. It's always more than identity. And it, it shapes identity in a lot of ways. Um, anyways, so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the idea of the, the quote, and I'm going to quote from you, is talking about the symbolic order, right? Because for Lacan, your identity is very much based on how you see yourself in a mirror. Kind of like it's like the ultimate example of what your ego is. Like, uh, so the ultimate example of the mirror stage is like basically you see your reflection in someone 
and then you you try to confirm your reflection by looking at your mom or your dad and it's like that's me you know <laughs> like I'm, you, imagine being a little baby and like being able to see yourself in the eyes of another and you, you feel you feel like oh damn i'm i'm hot shit you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's like that's all the ego right so but the subject comes in especially with language uh symbolic and for lacan the symbolic has to do with both presence and non-presence the symbolic has to do with presence and absence together and the, how they work interchangeably and all the various formations that could be formed in the conjunction with presence and absence of course of course <laughs> i was sorry it's like kind of heady stuff but it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Does that make sense, though? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, so, like, so, for instance, like, uh, like the word "dog," right? Mm-hmm. You use the word "dog," like you're not really seeing a dog. You're not like petting a dog, but you're using the word "dog." So, there's like it entails a kind of absence, mm-hmm. right? Okay. But, but yeah, but even though when you're like with a real dog, you still are bound by categories like dog. So there's still an absence. There's always, there's never like a full presence of anything. Okay. Because language always, you know, takes something to a different register. And like, you know, human reality is shaped by various, what Lacan calls registers. Like, so there's an imaginary register, which might be like your normal everyday experience in certain ways. And then there's symbolic registers, like when you start thinking about language. And then there's a reel, which you don't want to touch on a reel. <laughs> or sometimes you want to touch on it. Maybe you want to go, you know, break down some, some things, you know. But uh, so basically, if you're thinking about Lacan, and this is kind of like what I hate about him, but what I love about him too. You're always thinking about this relationship between these three things, the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. It's kind of like Freud of like the id, ego, and superego, although they don't match up or anything. But And so you think about how these three things are part of your reality. It's a pretty cool uh, way of taking apart reality and understanding it. Do you take, because um, you're always posting stuff about Lacan that oh, yeah. you've always been pretty uh, excited with him. Uh, it it kind of goes over my head. I never, I've never read it. Do you, uh, do you take this like uh, as uh, like, this is it, this guy found it? Oh, um, you know, that's the thing. And, you know, recently in the past year, I've been, um, I guess, I don't know the word for it is. Maybe the word is deconstruction. But I've been kind of deconstructing Lacan. Not to say that I'm like criticizing him. What I'm saying is that like Lacan just stole his ideas from all these other people. <laughs> Very postmodern. Yeah, yeah. So the idea, for instance, that like reality is founded by a nothingness, a lack. Yet this lack is something that you could use in order to live a good life. That's Sartre, right? That's Jean-Paul Sartre. Like, that's being in nothingness. And actually, uh, Sartre was like a patient of Lacan's or Analyzan. Oh. Uh, yeah. And so Lacan's basically also stealing and, or cribbing from um, Claude Lévi-Strauss, right? Lévi-Strauss in America. Like this idea of uh, cultures being formed by these structures of meaning. Anyway, so yeah, so he's just like taking from all these people. So he's not, I don't think he's it. I don't think he's the be-all, end-all. I think he's sort of like a, he was a very interesting mashup of all these different things that were going on in Paris in the 50s and 60s. Like, you know, people are looking at Heidegger. People are looking at structural anthropology. People are thinking about Sartre and freedom. And, and he's kind of like, he's, he was like the best DJ. <laughs> you know? But he was a mess, though. Like, like, most of his stuff is these seminars, right? Most of the literature we have 
is basically not even it's like this it's like us talking it's like transcriptions of him talking randomly in the classroom they're called the seminars right i think they're like almost 20 of them and you read them and a lot of them are like totally incoherent you know <laughs> like, yeah. Little, yeah but you know if you really study them you know you notice certain patterns and things that he loves to repeat and and he put them together and you're like oh shit this is actually kind of interesting so uh, yeah unfortunately like it takes a lot of time he's like the hardest philosopher to get into because unlike other philosophers you know there's like the one essay or the couple essays you could read in order to be like oh yeah i get i get it now like for instance if you want to know derrida a lot of it is just reading the talk he gave at john hopkins university structure sign and play which Lacan presented at the same conference, but his talk was incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you say that next to Derrida, that's a pretty bad... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, if you say, like, hey, that was a good, uh, comprehensible talk by Derrida, I don't understand what this guy is saying. Yeah, yeah, no, literally, yeah. People were like... Those are low standards, man. <laughs> yeah, people were really pissed at Lacan in that talk. Yeah, I was like, what are you doing? This is your chance, right? Because after Derrida gave that talk... He became the talk of the town, right, in the U.S. And he got translated, right, uh, of, of grammatology, got translated. But Lacan blew it. <laughs> he blew it, right? He blew it, his chance at, at uh, making his ideas comprehensible. Because he was like, I don't know, he must be some kind of neurotic or something. Like, he must have issues, right? Uh, I don't know why he talked in that way. But I think he's a great DJ, He's a great DJ. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so do you want to hear the quote? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Quote number three. <laughs> quote number three. So um, the fundamental relation of man to the symbolic order is very precisely what founds the symbolic order itself. The relation of non-being to being. Right? The relation of non-being to being. What insists on being satisfied can only be satisfied in recognition. The end of the symbolic process is that non-being comes to be because it has spoken. For me, that quote, that's peak Lacan there. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. Anyway, uh, like, like, it, I need to hear that a couple of times, but uh, I felt something in there. Yeah, the relationship to non-being and being. Right? And Derrida noticed this too. The problem with a lot of philosophy and thinking is that we're kind of obsessed with presence. Like we want full presence. We want to be whole, you know? And um, Lacan and Derrida are like, hey, there's some cool things you can learn about yourself if you see yourself as not whole. You could like really get into some interesting things. Mm. But our desire for being an object, <laughs> I don't know why we hunger for this so much, but our desire to be an object that's present to itself is like pervasive in Western thought, you know? All right. I think I just had like a, one of those, like I got it for a second and then it went away, but okay. <laughs> We're obsessed with our image, right? We're like the selfie. I mean, we've always been the selfie culture, even since a long time ago. <laughs> not, it's not a millennial shit, you know? Like the boomers are, if not even worse. Uh, yeah, fucking boomers. Yeah, selfies, man. <laughs> fucking selfies. So instead of being like, think about selfies, you can think about subjectivity, which has to do with your relationship to otherness. 
Uh, otherness is a it's a word that sometimes is helpful sometimes i hate it because it's such a no, it's so easy to just like you know otherness yeah thisness yeah uh otherness would be everything that is not you but if you're saying that we are not complete yeah then wh where does otherness begin in well it's like it, it you extends know? you right it makes you think differently and one's not the center of the world you know it puts you in perspective oh man so this is This is your daily bread. Oh yeah, you know, you know. Uh, <laughs> and later, later, I like to sing a song actually, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. fuck yeah, <laughs> yeah. But anyways, I've been um, really getting into Mexican philosophy, uh, especially like Octavio Paz. You know, uh huh. Labyrinth de la Soledad. Well, it's more like Latin American philosophy. Anyways, there's this um, heavy emphasis on the word soledad in a lot of Latin American, uh, you know, writings of identity. Right, Cienangos de Soledad by Marquez, uh, El Laberinto de la Soledad by Octavio Paz. And so, yeah, it's like they seem to pick that word as like the marker of what it means to be Mexican or Latin American. And I'm really curious about why they choose that word, right? Hmm, now you got me thinking about Roy Orbison. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Only the lonely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh... I cry. And have you have you started with that like research on that, or is it like something just floating in your head now? Well, it's, yeah, it's floating in my head. Well, because I was teaching um, some postmodern uh, Latinx texts. I really love, uh, for instance, uh, someone who actually is working right now at FIU. I think you should read her. Her name is Ana Menendez, uh, and Ana Menendez wrote this amazing short story cycle that has these Borges and influences to it. It's like it's influenced by a lot of French experimental writing too. It's called the uh, Adios Happy Homeland. Is it in Spanglish or what the Oh no, it's in Sp it's English, yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's Cuban American. And I'm also reading um I was teaching The People of Paper by Salvador Placencia. Anyways, but yeah, there's um like sadness and la soledad is like a big theme that runs through a lot of uh like, you know, engaging with that at least seems to be a theme. Yeah, like it's there you can't escape it uh deal with it yeah but i got a i got another quote for you then all right quote number four <laughs> quote number four so this is from the labyrinth of solitude or el labyrinth de la soledad i hope you remember everything i said about non-being and lack because <laughs> of course <laughs> <laughs> anyways this is quote number four now it says quote that solitude is the profoundest fact of the human condition man is the only being who knows he is alone And the only one who seeks out another, right? It's the other, right? His nature, if that word can be used in reference to man who has invented himself by saying no to nature, his nature consists of his longing to realize himself in another. Man is nostalgic and in search for communion. Therefore, when he is aware of himself, he is aware of his lack of another, that is, of his solitude, unquote. That one, uh, yeah, that one hits me. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's Mexican, so he's talking about Mexican identity, which is really interesting, right? It's like he's that's kind of ballsy that he does this, right? Like, wouldn't that like offend some people? Like, what? Why? So did I? Like, that? What? That's you're you're defining me in terms of this concept. Like, you know, I'm I'm just wondering what you think about that, the idea. Then, like, why would why would this be the concept that cements Mexican identity? Oh, I don't know. That's uh, ooh, that cements Mexican identity. I don't know. Like, I don't. 
see i don't know if i if that hit me because of being mexican or if it just like uh or it's just like on a purely intellectual level but that one made a lot of sense yeah and so that's like it interpolates cultural identity right because he's basically saying yeah this is like a mexican thing so it's weird you know it's a weird thing maybe it's like low-key racist <laughs> that he does this but <laughs> why because i don't know like to define a cultural identity is always sort of like a risky business right well uh ooh, oh oh man we're gonna <laughs> yeah because you're always gonna need an other to define yourself against and then by doing that somebody's gonna say that's not correct to define the because you're not gonna define the other by pleasant terms yeah those people are great and we are the opposite <laughs> yeah and yeah like <laughs> and like you're always in the shadow of the soledad and Anyways, yeah, I'd really love to read him more, you know. Uh, but anyways, the, the song I want to sing is like, I'm really getting into boleros. You like boleros? Uh, wait, you weren't into them before? Yeah, well, yeah, always. But, you know, sometimes like... <laughs> okay, okay. I, I get into other things, right? Because last time I saw you, you were really into boleros, so... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I really like... Um, I've been hearing on repeat, Jose Jose's... La Nave del Ovido. Oh, man. Oh. That song is really, right? That song is really fucking uh, deep, you know? Yeah. You know that song? No. Jose Jose is one of those things that I know as a chunk. Like, there's there's obviously, like, the top five hits. Yeah. But it's one of those things that is just part of my sentimental education. You just heard it as a kid when I was living in Tijuana. Like, that was the music where if you walk into a bar at 2 p.m., you know, there's drunk people like passed out in the bar and that's the type of music playing. Like it's part yeah. of this whole like a rip your heart out and let it bleed uh, school. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very <laughs> Latin, Latin American, you know. Yeah. It's a solid odd, you know. <laughs> it makes me think at the same time of being like being a kid and learning about love and being like a like a crazy guy like going for like binges on dive bars <laughs> yeah it has those two things and they both make me feel very nostalgic so why don't i sing the song though yeah I, you know and if you know the chorus you should uh join me even if i did i probably shouldn't but <laughs> but go ahead all right let's see all right get a little drink of water but uh this is from the album la nave de lo vido which um yeah, I guess if you don't know Spanish, your listeners are in tough luck, but they should learn, you know? <laughs> but the Nave de Lovido means the ship of oblivion. And basically the metaphor of the song is like, the ship of oblivion is going to depart soon. And the singer is yearning for just one more chance to bring this person happiness before they go and disappear into the nothing, right? It's really, uh, that's, that's deep, man. Yeah, man. This is a fucking, this is a 70s pop song and shit. And we don't do that heavy duty stuff and like Anglo culture that much. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, maybe you could translate it afterwards. Some, but it goes, uh, "Espera, aún la nave del olvido no ha partido. No condenemos el naufragio, lo vivido. Por nuestro ayer, por nuestro amor, yo te lo pido." Espera, aún me quedan en mis manos primaveras para colmarte de caricias todas nuevas que morirían en mis manos si te fueras. Espera un poco, un poquito más para llevarte mi felicidad. Espera un poco. 
un poquito más. Me moriría si te vas, espera un poco, un poquito más. Para llevarte mi felicidad, espera un poco, un poquito más. Me moriría si te vas. You're the joy me now. Espera un poco, un poquito más. Para llevarte mi felicidad, espera un poco. Un poquito más me moriría si te vas. Pretty good, eh? Oh, man. Good song, I mean, not my voice. I don't care about my... Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> you just like, you uh, just fucking took me away. You made me cry, man. Uh, oh, shit. I mean, oh, yeah. like this is like, we go back to that thing about the brains and like the different time and place. Like I'm sitting in the closet here in Paris. Like <laughs> you know, every time I'm in this space, I get transported because I speak with friends. And then like you just took me on the trip of all these <laughs> like, teenage love, uh, binge drinking uh. at bars and TJ. <laughs> Like, oh man! Oh, shit. I mean, that's a that's a song, right? I mean, yeah. I'm wondering, like, would uh, but would uh, someone like Dude, and you, that was interesting? You got you uh, you changed your voice. So I don't know if you're doing like an imitation of him, but that sounds really good. Like, yeah, because uh, oh yeah. Well, I think a lot of um, love voice stuff. I mean, you sort of have to become. I'm not becoming what say what say, but you get to kind of become something else. You know? No, you definitely got his uh, like I don't know what it is, like the the. The Kate, it sounds yeah, it's a kid. Uh, yeah. A little but, Puerto Rican R. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I like like the repetition of espera, like wait. Like when you're waiting for someone, that's like that's heavy duty, you know. Yeah, anyways, I don't know who wrote this song. I don't think it was Jose Jose himself, but this guy was writing poetry, you know. <laughs> he was like, I mean, a lot of these boleros, right? Are like they're like written within a certain genre that emphasize like loss and lack you know i think because like you know contemporary music like let's say reggaeton right you're there you want to like seduce uh. like, you really you <laughs> want to seduce someone but you want to seduce them by saying ah, la perea, la perea. <laughs> like i want to fuck you right <laughs> but like i feel like it's like part of the courtly love tradition right so uh i think they're in that zone Where it's like I can't tell this girl I'm gonna, I want to have sex with her, so I have to you know show her my loss. That's weird. Like, how do you show someone like your like lack or whatever? Yeah, it's deep as deep as fuck. Because you 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 show like the the suffering that you're willing to go like uh, as opposed to, yeah yeah. But yes, it's it's the absence. You're showing the absence and the pain that the absence creates. Yeah, we're back to Lacan, you know, or the Lasat, or yeah, right, the lack, right, the lack, the lack. Yeah, because I have I have a 33. Uh, like a, a vinyl of his, and I think it was one of the ones that I wasn't that I didn't bring. I'm not sure, but this was usually like I played on some happy mornings. 
Buenos Dias Amor, and like I'll, I'll put it on. And on some hangover mornings, I like to put Jose Jose as well. Because <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, you're feeling down like, all right, all right, let's do this. Let's fucking wallow in this. Yeah, let's wallow. <laughs> that's a thing. Yeah, let's wallow this like a fucking pig, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it's all about, yeah. And that's something that I could see now from afar because over there it was like normal and I again I don't know how much of it is a caricature <laughs> it becomes weird when you're here and then like everything you do oh it's because he's Mexican you know oh yeah and then, and then you kind of question yourself but there is that element I mean my friends tell me that I am a bit over dramatic anyway but there is that element of just like let's enjoy the suffering you know yeah. like, fuck it, it's there let's just go let's go yeah that's one of the reasons why I had such a great time in Portugal because I felt that type of a but maybe he, maybe I'm doing the same thing there, and maybe. Well, they have the, like the saudade or something. Is that what they call it? Yeah, I think that's a bit over. It's a bit exaggerated that thing. But there's definitely the the thing with Fado where uh, you you know let's. That's let's... what uh saudade, right? It's like this profound melancholic longing, right? It's the same shit. Uh, I mean, I think it's like I mean not the same shit, but it's it, it's definitely like there's an affinity there that it's like. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a bigger issue here. Like, I'm gonna have to ask. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna have Ricardo. Remember Ricardo, the Portuguese lecturer before Pedro? Yeah, 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 for sure. So I'll, I'll try and like we've talked about it. I've seen him a couple times, and we talk about this, like, because uh, it's it became like this point of pride in the way that Portuguese studies get sold, like. It always comes back to this, like, saudade, saudade. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's just one word that doesn't exist anywhere else. It's like the same thing of uh, uh, right? La soledad, la soledad. Everyone's trying to find la soledad, you know? It seems a little bit exaggerated, but I can't tell. I'll make a note of that, and I'll ask a Portuguese literature student. Yeah. I'll ask him what I think it's a bit exaggerated, but then to me, it's a learned language. So, you know, I will never have all of the references and all of the feeling. But, um... Ooh, yeah, man, you took me away. I was thinking the poquito mas. We just found the yeah. the, the episode title, man. You got mucho mas <laughs> and espera un poquito mas. <laughs> un poquito mas. That's amazing. This, yeah. yeah, so un poquito mas is the name of the show then. Yeah. Yeah. Mucho, yeah. mucho <laughs> mas y un poquito mas. You know, you know what? What's really, this is going to blow your mind. Well, it's gonna it blows my mind right now. But uh, the 20th seminar of Lacan was called Encore. And he meant encore in the way that un poquito más, right? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's like un poquito más. Like, give me a little bit more. I want a little bit more of that sweet, sweet words. You know. <laughs> you know. Uh, beautiful, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. Uh, there's another song by Los Panchos, right? It's like, uh, voy a apagar la luz para pensar en ti. You know one? No. That's, but it's literally the song is like he's like in his room alone and he says I'm gonna turn off the light <laughs> to think about you and he's like dancing around the room and that's really a paradigmatic song right because it's like you're you're dancing with the absence you know yeah well then there's also reloj oh, which yeah. would tie into the la nave del olvido uh, yeah that's true like asking the clock to please please stop moving <laughs> because my life is going to end if she leaves. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they used to see, like, I learned that song when I was in uh, fifth grade. Like it was just part of like music class and you're all singing and you're learning. this. And that's what I mean. Like, it's like it, 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 it goes inside, you know, like you're just a kid and you're thinking <laughs> it. And something behind you is like, Jesus Christ, this guy's going to die because she's leaving. <laughs> 
Oh, wow. You're asking time to stop. Wow. Uh, I see the lyrics like, uh, El silencio es más fuerte que un relámpago. So silence is stronger than a thunder. It tortures my mind. Soledad, terror, dolor y amor. Pasa el tiempo en mi reloj. So there's that word again, solitude. I'm telling you, man. I think yeah. I, I think I'm, um, I'm onto something, you know. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Jeez. <laughs> well, fuck. thank you, man. Yeah, that's a. Uh, sometimes, yeah, you know, I don't even know what I'm thinking. I need a midwife, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they got these baby babies out of my. <laughs> that's cool, though. Oh man, I'm gonna be thinking about that song now. Wait, so yeah. so what's uh what's going on? So when I when I saw you, uh, let's see what happened. When I left, you were already done with the PhD, or like you still needed to. You hadn't done the the ceremony, but then the year after you you moved to Florida, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm an instructor of literature in Florida, uh, and I teach uh, the post colonial stuff, or I guess other people would call it like multicultural. So I do um, Latinx literature. African literature, and I do uh, Caribbean literature, which is like, I guess that's my like main field. Uh, it's a good spot to be. It's like a permanent position. So I'm, I, I'm using this time to really uh, think about my next project, uh, manuscript, which is about Puerto Rican literature, but it's going to try to include basically all this, you know, <laughs> in like coderly, like, you know, I want to put all these ideas into a nice bow. Um, yeah, anyways. You're still bound by that publish or perish thing, right? Like you have to be like. No, oh no, no. Doing... So I, I, I'm not really. That's the thing. I, I kind of, I escaped that. So I'm not. It's not a tenure track position. Ah. So I mean, on the on the downside, right? I there's no kind of real advancement, right? But on the upside, like I don't have the clock, right? Yeah. So I mean, I do want to get something done really soon. Like I want to get something done as soon as possible. I'm not trying to say that like stalling or anything it's just i'm i'm doing some really difficult shit <laughs> that, that requires a lot of reading right yeah sounds that good <laughs> so it's, it takes this takes a long time so I'm, i think i'm uh i got lucky you know yeah no that sounds great because then once you like once if you have time to do it you publish your shit and then you can like look for a different job yeah that's the deal unless you know i would love to be here forever because I, i love fiu cool yeah, yeah no yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny because yeah, it's like the it's like the big other right but it's like it's real though i mean i'm being i'm being honest though uh, the students are great and you know they're like 70 latinx so most of the students here are bilingual and stuff cool man yeah you know right that's different right you get so you get to teach stuff that's really cool but that's relevant to them you know like like i mentioned ana menendez or Salvador Placencia, these are like kind of heavyweights, right? And they really helped me to think through a lot of the the continental philosophy stuff. Yeah, and then uh, and then uh, you know when I'm uh, you know, need a break of it, you know, I listen to boleros, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, there's another song, right? That's relevant. It's like uh, you know, contigo en la distancia. Uh -huh. Isn't that the title? It means like together with in together with you in the distance. Yeah, isn't that that's so fucking poetic. I remember that song. Uh, <laughs> that song was in a TV commercial. I think for like Pacific <laughs> Bell or AT and T or something like that. Oh, <laughs> so, I mean, well, that's pretty good. That's how I remember. It. That's pretty good use of the song. Yeah, it's like it's like a scene from Dumb and Dumber. You know, like. A, <laughs> 
they're sitting there crying in front of the TV and it's like a Pacific Bell commercial. <laughs> Contigo la distancia, amara mía, yo estoy. <laughs> oh, man. It has a... Uh, do you do like uh, music stuff there in Paris? Like, uh, like go to things or like concerts? Yeah, yeah, man. We went to watch uh, Antibalas. Remember, I sent you a link some time ago. Oh shit! You posted something like about something about uh, it was a Marxist thing. Oh yeah. And uh, and then I posted an Antibalas song. This is like it's just great Afrobeat music, but it's called Big Man, and it just kind of breaks it down. Like I go to work and I give you back all the money. Oh shit. Yeah. You don't remember? Uh, I, you sent me a message. You said you liked it, but I don't know if you. I, I really, it yeah, down. I must have heard it, but I forgot. Antivala's Afrobeat Orchestra. I'm gonna look it up. Yeah, man, they're fucking good. Again, <laughs> again, you know, you know, it's like a un poquito más, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we. I hadn't been uh, to a lot of concerts. Uh, you know, money was tight, so I was kind of being careful. But uh, like, some stuff has come up. So let's see, like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. That's one of my favorite bands right now. Damn, yeah. Look it up. Yeah, it's more like rock, but they're a fun show. And then, yeah, I went to see Antivalas. I bought tickets to, yeah. what else? Stereolabs doing a comeback. I'm basically like reliving all the old music stuff. <laughs> I like. Oh, wow. I haven't le listened to a lot of new stuff, uh, like in, in shows. Are you into the Parisian scene of music? No, it's uh, it's something that I'm trying to like. I keep putting effort into it, and then I give up. It's it's weird. It's it doesn't work at all. Like like in the U.S. Yeah. Um. There's there's no set of bars where kids go play, you know, mm -hmm. and 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 get their chops. Like they go there, they get booed, or they play for beer. Yeah. Because there's no garages. There, like you can't practice, you can't have a band in Paris. Oh, interesting. I also thought like, oh, I'm gonna go see like you know what's going on with music over there. I can't find it. There's, yeah, there's a couple of bars. But... I mean, a lot of it then would be like you know, a lot of hip hop. Like you know, one of my favorite uh, tracks from um, uh, you know, uh, Section de Soot. I think they're still around, right? <laughs> You know them? Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, maybe Elise has has played it for me, but it's funny that you, it it rings a bell. Yeah, they have that song called Balade. I'm not a hip hop guy, and and I find French hip hop like, <laughs> like I don't... <laughs> it's pretty cool song though. I think you like it. But I mean, just since I don't like hip hop to start, I like the the rap. Uh... J'aime balader, allez balader, j'aime balader au champ Elysée, and j'aime balader au champ Elysée. <laughs> it's a good song, you know. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I think if you hear that song, you'd be like, "That's a good song." I I don't understand <laughs> what they're saying half the time, but I think their bars are tight. You know, it transcends. You know, it's like the rhythm of their words are kind of cool. Yeah, there, there's this. Um... There's something about accents here that I like. There was a moment at the very beginning when French was just like white noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That me too. I remember that experience. I used to enjoy like when you when I would be in the metro, especially like around my street. There's a lot of people from everywhere, and it was like just like being in the jungle and listening to different birds, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because everybody had like their yeah. own little music, and like wah, 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 wah. And it was just the. Uh, I don't know. It was it was it was nice to be wa walking around to be able to listen to the cadence without having to understand what they were talking about. But they you lost that, right? Yeah, not I, uh, not completely. But I, it's <laughs> very hard to tune it off. Like now, if fucking kids are running around yelling, I don't understand everything that they're saying. But the words, you know, like the meanings coming in. Yeah, I don't have. I can't. I can't tune it off anymore. Yeah, that happened to me too. Like, I lived in uh, Paris for a month and a half. I was like. 
doing like language thing at the Sorbonne, which I hate saying that because it sounds more fancy than it actually is. But, <laughs> but um, what's fancy, man? <laughs> but I was um, like, I had a radio, and like before, like I was like trying to listen to what we're saying. So most of the time, for like the whole month, I was there. The radio was just like no noise. But then, like it was like literally like a day, one day after another thing. Where all of a sudden the noise became words. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. It was like, what? What? I can understand in French? Yeah. It, That's weird. It's a strange feeling. Like, um, so I knew uh, Serge, for example, I can't say Serge Gainsbourg in the French accent because I knew him as Serge Gainsbourg. Yeah. Like, I knew him before I could speak a word of French. And I knew, like, this uh, that album comic strip, like, beginning to end, just phonetically. <laughs> You know, I could I could mimic it the whole way through, and there was like that one moment where I was doing the dishes and I put music on, and like I I, I started to cry, man. Like, yeah. like what? Like wow. Like all the words were coming in, and I understood everything. And it's ah. so weird that something that that you knew with a different part of your brain. Ah. Yeah, it was very it was very. Uh, That's weird. Uh, yeah it's like understanding meaning uh, yeah i don't know wow i don't know i feel like this is all connecting it's kind of weird yeah yeah <laughs> I, I, I felt something there too it's weird i think we're being authored by someone else you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, interesting. Well, i mean um I, I mean i do fantasize about living in paris but i mean it's not like i don't want to give the impression i'm like a just a francophile or something. <laughs> I'm a, little, right. a lot of places. <laughs> I don't want to like, peg myself as like uh, this like Frenchy. Well, you think people would be offended? No, it's it's dangerous. No, like it would be like I don't like yeah, it would be like a misunderstanding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love French. I just love I love, I love French uh, thought. You know, they're good thinkers. Yeah, it's really strange when when you. Um... Um, so do you remember, uh, Rayuela, the, the very, like the epigraph, hmm. it's a, it has, I mean, it has a couple of phrases. But oh man, you, gotta, thing, you should, you should do like the quote thing. <laughs> Blow my mind. Quote number five. Yeah. But I don't, God damn it. I don't have it with me. Uh, oh, but it's, it's a little phrase in French that I always thought like, this is so weird. This is such, uh, such an amazing book. That is such a shitty quote to put at the beginning of a book. Yeah. Uh, and it says uh, something like, uh, nothing kills a man like being responsible of representing a whole country. Oh, shit. Yeah, that, that, that really ties into the our conversation of Octavio Paz. Yeah, well, yeah, well that's, that, it's, I always thought, like, that is a, such a stupid quote. But I was, uh, I was, you know, I was just a guy that lived in TJ that had never left TJ. Oh, yeah. I and see. then now that I'm here, that whole thing where I was telling you about like, oh, I don't like everybody. Like, oh, it's because he's Mexican. Oh, yeah. And I could see like the pressure, the the constant pressure that that puts on to the point where even you wonder, what, why am I thinking this? Is this me? Is this a combination of things? Is this just uh, you? You're from that country, and that's it. You're, you're bound to uh, enjoy wallowing in loneliness. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I feel like um, uh, I don't know. I think well, we definitely kind of tried to cons- at least I try to consume my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation's music, right? As a teenager. Like I actively sought to do that. I, I, I can't speak for my brothers. I don't think they they don't know boleros, right? But yeah, but then you get something. You get inf- you kind of get infected by something when you do that, right? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> like, for example, Juan Gabriel, like, I never, I, w- I was never, I never owned a CD in my life of Juan Gabriel or any of that. My mom would play it. Again, I would listen to it at dive bars at three in the afternoon. And when he died, I was here. Like, I, I like, you know, it didn't break me down, but I cried. And, yeah. You know, one or two tears came down because it was like, Juan Gabriel. I thought it was like, it's the end of an era. That's, yeah. uh, that's like that sentimental education. It's such is yeah, like, yeah, that's the word. You know, I think that's the phrase sentimental education and then so so there i was just thinking about uh, and anyway like the french it's hard to just say like oh it's because the french are this you know yeah the french had like a i think the french music in the 60s is similar to the boleros and stuff like uh i mean they're a little bit different of course but you know you have people like um uh what george besson right you know all that stuff yeah what's called french chanson yeah, I so that's the kind of stuff that I I I can enjoy, but I I can't sit down and listen to it. Like it's that stuff, for example, doesn't come in directly yet. I don't understand it. I have to sit down and pay attention to it, oh, so yeah. I don't enjoy it that much. Uh, my favorite song is like another one. It's like kind of like the Nave de Lovido, one of those songs that like I play over and over and over again because there's some kind of poetic brilliance to it. It's uh, by Georges Brasson or B R A S S E N S. I'm not sure if I'm yeah yeah. But he has a song called Je me suis fait tout petit. Like, I make myself little. Uh, yeah, you should check it out. Maybe after the show or something. I'll write it down. I'm not sure if I'll be able to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, can sing, I can sing the main melody, though. Yeah, yeah, please. Je me suis fait tout petit devant une poupée qui ferme le yeux quand on la couche. Je me suis fait tout petit devant une poupée qui fait maman quand on la touche. You know, that's interesting because it's like a, the translation is like, I make myself little in front of a puppet that closes her eyes when I touch her or when I put her to bed. I make myself little in front of a puppet that's who says mama when I touch her. He's kissing his daughter. He's kissing <laughs> his daughter in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> we can close it there. We came full circle. All right. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh, shit. <laughs> all right on that note then uh side us off with a rich chocolatey goodness so we can hear everybody saying it together okay rich, rich chocolatey, chocolatey goodness. goodness all right thanks man yeah this is great all right goodbye goodbye rich chocolatey goodness is produced by benjamin morse and pedro escobar Theme song by Marco Moreno with a little zhuzh from Pedro. Very special thank you to our guest, Dr. Michael Grafalz, and this episode's surprise musical guest, the prince of postmodern literature himself, Michael Michael Grafalz. If you'd like to read the selected quotes or listen to an excellent Spotify playlist made by Michael as a companion to this episode, visit our Instagram and Facebook at Rich Chocolatey Goodness. And while you're there, follow us to get all the rich chocolatey updates and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify for brand new goodness delivered to you every other Sunday.